You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. If you wish for peace, prepare for war. And today, organizations, if you want to run a healthy, prosperous business and maintain a sense of peace, you need to prepare for digital war. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Uh, we got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Nick Sheveloff, he is the chief security officer from Silicon Valley Bank. All right, Joe, uh, before we get to our stories this week, uh, we got a little follow-up from a listener. What do we have? We have a letter from a listener who would like to remain anonymous. Mm. And A. Nani Mouse writes, Dear Dave and Joe, thank you very much for the great show. I listen to it every week to keep reminding myself of the potential scams out there. Keep up the great work. I wanted to share a story with you about something that happened at work a couple weeks back. I work as a security engineer for one of the largest banks in Europe. We have a policy that if you want to access company information on a mobile device, you have to roll it into our mobile device management solution. This is very common uh, Mm -hmm. among a lot of uh, institutions if you bring your own device, including my employer, Hopkins. Uh, Mm. You have to enroll in this MDM solution. You can either bring your own device uh, or the company will provide you one. When you enroll the device, a management profile is installed so that the device can be managed remotely and a bunch of apps are installed. What happened a couple weeks back was that the group that operates the MDM wanted to change one of the apps with a different similar one. Usually, this is announced in advance to as many people as possible, but this time they only announced it to a small group of people. I was personally not aware of the change in apps, so in the middle of a meeting, I got a message saying that the company would like to install an app. I've never heard of this app. Being a skeptic that I am, which is an occupational hazard, we're all skeptics here, anonymous, I hit no and figured I'd check on it later to see if it was legitimate or not. Well, I was not the only one who thought this sounded suspicious. The help desk and security team were flooded with phone calls, emails, and messages from hundreds of people wondering if they had been hacked or if someone was trying to fish them. A lot of people just hit no I don't want to install this app because they had no idea what was going on. (laughs) Working security sometimes feels like a continuously uphill struggle. So when we get a win, I think we should enjoy it and share it. It seems very clear that the awareness and educational programs that security departments are running are working. So what do you think, Dave? (laughs) I would love to know what the security team thinks about their success. I mean, I think I'm sure they have mixed feelings where on the one side, it's great that people were suspicious of this. Uh, On the other hand, they had to field all these calls. And to me, that's because they dropped the ball when it came to communicating what what people should expect. I agree with you 100. percent This is a this is a uh, and while it is a success in uh, in some in some way of making people a little more leery or a lot more leery, it would seem of uh, being told they're going to install something. I, it is a an absolute failure of communication, uh, and that is key in this industry. You have to tell people what's going on, and you have to communicate appropriately and properly. Yeah, I, I think it's great to see that. Uh, so many people are taking personal responsibility for the security of their device. I, I could imagine a lot of people 
you know, would say, oh, this is my work device. Something comes in, whatever, you know, I'll just hit yes. Not my problem. If, you know, if, it, if something doesn't work out, that's the security team's problem. And, right. you know, no, we, we, we need to do better than that. We've, and it seems like in this case, uh, our listeners, coworkers did just that. So good for them. All right. Well, thanks to uh, our listener for sending that in to us. We would love to hear from you. You can send us uh, your questions or follow-up to hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, let's uh, jump into our stories this week. I'm going to kick things off for us. Uh, I have a story. This comes from Wired, uh, and it's written by Becca Andrews. Um, The title of the article is, They Were Calling to Help, Then They Stole Thousands, and uh, really is a a narrative about uh, Becca Andrews' mother being the victim of a phone scam. And uh, her mother gets a phone call one morning uh, on her mobile phone. Uh, There's a gentleman on the other end of the line who says, someone has access to your bank accounts through Amazon and they can take all your money. I'm calling to help. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is typical in these phone scams where they, they gin up a problem uh, and then they immediately offer the solution to the problem. So mm-hmm. it, it's mm-hmm. it's a telltale sign, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, there is a huge problem, and I can help you fix it. Right. And this person says that he just needed some information from her to make sure that her money was safe. Right. Uh, and over the next several hours, she was on the line with this person, um, even you know, not not hanging up for bathroom breaks or meal breaks or anything like that. The person on the line said, "I'll stay on the line while you do things because we want to make sure we get this through correctly." And uh, over the next few hours, uh, she installed several apps at this person's instruction. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them to be able to have visibility onto her device to she to see what she was doing. Uh, installed several different um, cash apps to transfer money, uh, Coinbase, uh, a Zelle account, um, many different ways to you know transfer money out of her device. Right. Um, in the end, uh, she ended up being scammed out of about eleven thousand dollars. Um. And one of the other harrowing parts of this story is the person on the other line convinced her that she had to keep it all a secret, that perhaps it was her spouse who was in on this and she right. shouldn't tell anybody, right. uh, stoking so, her fears about that. This is this is common, right? They try to isolate you. It's a common feature of these scams. But what's, what's abhorrent here is that this guy doesn't care about her inter, interpersonal relationships with her, with her spouse, right? Yeah. He's perfectly fine sowing discord in that relationship just to get his money. Yep, yep. And and so some time passed uh, between when she did not tell her spouse about this and her spouse had been asking, you know, what, what have you been doing? You've been on your phone all day, you know, that sort of thing. But then eventually the 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 weight of it uh, got to her and, and she shared the story. And uh, so her spouse was able to... Uh, well, what her spouse did was call their daughter, who is uh, the woman who wrote this article, right. and then uh, she kicked into to gear to try to help them. Part of this article is about how difficult it is to deal with some of these online cash companies that, right. you know, with as with so many of these online companies, they are not set up for customer service. No, that's right? their business model. <laughs> right. You know, right. use the service, and then when something goes wrong, tough. <laughs> it's, 
don't complain to us because, well, I mean, you can complain to us, but we don't hear it. It's great. It's yeah. a great business model. People, people, uh, people use the product, and then uh, when they can't use the product, they just stop using the product. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they were able to get back about ten thousand uh, dollars. It took several oh, months to do, uh, and a lot of time, a lot of work, a lot of frustration. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really left them all feeling exposed. It left them feeling vulnerable. It fe- left them feeling victimized. Uh, right. Well, they a were more cynical. Yeah. Yeah. So it's. Um, I, we'll have a link to the article here. It's it's worth a read, and it's definitely worth uh, sharing around to your friends and family. As as you point out, Joe, there are a lot of red flags in here. You know, one of the things that I think it's important to reiterate is that um, this person's mother, the author's mother, uh, she said uh, she felt like it was her fault. You know, like right. she she said, "I did a stupid thing. I'm so stupid." She, that no. she uh, fell for this, and she didn't. She was manipulated. She was right. she was outgunned. There was no way she was going to outsmart these people who do yeah. this sort of thing every day. Yeah. I mean, the only thing you can do to outsmart them is just hang up on them. That's it. Right, right. That's and the there is bet. kind of a, a little uh, uh, end to this story where uh, later on another scammer called her, and uh, that's exactly what she did. She just hung up on them, and then she called her daughter and said, Hey, I did the right thing. You know, yeah, I, I've learned my lesson. So, uh, right. Well, you know, that, uh, that is a win. That is a big win. A lot of times we see people get scammed over and over and over again. They follow on scams and everything like that. This woman uh, lost a thousand dollars. It sounds like, and and a lot of time trying to get the other ten thousand dollars back. Yeah. Uh, but she has learned and now just hangs up when these people call. Right. That's great. You know. Yep. Um, you know, my, my son was telling me the other day, he got a, an email from Amazon. It, it looked like it came from Amazon, but it was really just a phishing email. I actually opened up the attachment uh, once I, I, I tested the attachment for viruses and then uh, with VirusTotal. And then I opened it up and found out it was just linking to a phishing site. They were just trying to fish his Amazon credentials. But he said it was almost convincing. Hmm. Um, you know, the the email itself was almost convincing enough for him to, to do it. The only thing he noticed was that the the address wasn't right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, these guys are really good at what they do, really yeah. good at it. Yeah. And if they get you on the phone, they, you know, one of the things this story points out is how, uh, what a calming presence the people on the other end of the line were that, you know, they're here to help and they're, right. you know, just trust me, we're going to get, we're going to get through this together, that sort of yeah. thing. Um, so we'll have a link to this in the show notes. It's, it's a good read. It's a, it's really one of the best narratives I've seen about this sort of scam, uh, and the things, what it takes to try to claw it back. Uh, so definitely worth uh, checking out, passing around. There's a lot of good lessons to be learned here and a great way to raise people's awareness. So again, mm-hmm. that's uh, written by Becca Andrews, and it's over on Wired. Uh, that is my story this week. Joe, what do you have for us? Dave, you have spent some time bashing Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, I've been known to, to be critical of Facebook from time to time. <laughs> what, yes, what, me too. what have they done this time? <laughs> well... So I have two stories. First, the first story is from Business Insider. It comes from Ben Gilbert. And it's about the uh, Facebook earnings report that came out uh, last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you remember back in 2021 when Apple said, we're going to make apps, uh, people have to opt in to get the Apple advertiser ID? Yep. yep. When Apple enacted that, 95% of iPhone users who had downloaded the update opted out of, adver- of tracked advertising. Mm-hmm. And 
Facebook revenue, it looks like it's going to take a billion dollar hit in the coming year or $10 billion hit, $10 billion hit in the coming year. Uh, $10 billion sounds like a lot of money. Doesn't it, Dave? <laughs> uh, yes, I would say. Uh, <laughs> I would say by any measure, ten billion dollars is a lot of money. <laughs> okay, so here's here's the thing: their total revenue for the past year was almost one hundred and eighteen billion dollars, okay. and uh, they're complaining or telling shareholders to expect a ten billion dollar hit in ad revenue because of this one change that Apple made. So, in yeah. other words. Uh, about 50% of the U.S. market and 14% of the global market now has privacy enacted, and it cost Facebook less than 10% of their revenue. Hmm. Okay. So it's not that big of a hit, in my opinion. Yeah, I know you're you're upset that you that you can't track people and you can't and you can't uh, um, specifically target ads at them. Uh, but maybe that's a good thing. Which kind of leads me into my next story, which comes okay. from. The Guardian out of Australia, and it's written by Josh Taylor. Do you know who Andrew Forrest is? I do not. Okay, me neither. I did not know this until I read this article, but he is an Australian billionaire, and he has launched criminal proceedings against Facebook for failing to take action on scam ads that feature his image. Oh, okay. okay. So this is, he's, is he, uh, he's like Australia's Warren Buffett, sounds like? Uh, he might be. In fact, that's the first thing I think of when I think of billionaire scam ads. I think of Warren Buffett holding the big Bitcoin. You right. know, I Googled right. that image today and still got a chuckle out of it because it's obviously Photoshopped, right? Yeah. Warren, there's no way Warren Buffett could hold up a piece of metal this big. <laughs> uh, well, true. There, I don't think I could hold up a piece of metal that big at, yeah. in the way he's holding it. Um, so the ads appear on Facebook's news sites as programmatic ads supplied by Google uh, or, or, or from Facebook as well. But these ads target specific individual users, uh, mm. and they are presented as a news story claiming to be the celebrity that had made a big investments. And banks are shocked by how well it's doing. Right? <laughs> now, banks hate him. Right? Exactly. <laughs> right. You and I, you and I, see these ads and we just scroll by them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because we know that this, you know, we've been on the internet long enough. We know that these are scams. We know that this is clickbait. We know that this is just erroneous. But here's what happens if you actually click the ad. It takes you to a fake news story that includes a link claiming that cryptocurrency uh, claiming to be some cryptocurrency investment scheme uh, and you enter your details and register for the scheme and then you receive a phone call asking you to make an, an, initial, an initial investment of some small sum like 250 bucks. Huh. Then you are asked to to invest increasingly larger amounts. Mm. Um in one case that this paper previously reported on, a 77-year-old Queensland grandmother clicked through from a Facebook ad featuring uh, Andrew Forrest and initially transferred $5,000 uh, to a cryptocurrency exchange before being encouraged to put in more of her money. Scammers eventually emptied her accounts, stealing her entire life savings of $80,000, the article Ugh, said. Wow. And she was unable to get her money back because unlike the, your story – where these are banking apps. This is not a banking app. This is a cryptocurrency app. Once you buy that cryptocurrency and send that cryptocurrency to somewhere else, that's on the blockchain forever and you can't get it back. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you do something uh, which is impossible without consensus, right? It, and it, people are just not going to agree to that. Um, interesting, The Guardian has investigated who's behind the ads and they found hundreds, hundreds of these sites that the ads linked to were registered to just five names with addresses all in the center of Moscow. Hmm. Um, and surprisingly, so I'm, I'm shocked by this, Dave. None of those people listed on the registration forms 
uh, responded to the Guardian's attempts to contact them. <laughs> they just so didn't have— So help, help me understand what Andrew Forrest is doing here. So he's decided that Facebook is liable for allowing these scam ads to run. That, right. So he's—now, he's, uh, it's interesting to me that uh, this is going to be a criminal proceeding. Yeah, I, I, I thought that, too. That's something that stood out in my mind. I don't know how Australian law works. Mm-hmm. Um, here in America, I can't begin a pr- uh, criminal proceeding against somebody. Um, law enforcement, only the state can begin a criminal proceeding. I can b- yeah. begin all the civil proceedings I want and 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 sue Facebook in a civil court, but I can't file a criminal complaint in, or I can file a criminal complaint, but I can't begin a criminal uh, lawsuit here. Hmm. I don't know how that works in Australia. Maybe they can. Maybe Australian law says, yeah, you can you can actually go ahead and file criminal uh, lawsuits, launch criminal proceedings. Yeah, or he, you know, I guess if he convinces the right, uh, whatever the Australian version of right. the attorney general is, to yeah, absolutely, that this, uh, that this is that this rises to criminal to the yeah, criminal if I, level. If I called hmm. up Brian Frosch, who's the attorney general of Maryland, and said, "Hey, I think uh, I think you should be prosecuting this," um, you know, and and he agreed, or someone in his office agreed. Uh, that that might be how I would do this. In fact, that is exactly how I would go about it because the, yeah, yeah. In Maryland, the the um, the AG's office is pretty responsive to the citizens. Yeah, um, you know, it's interesting to me that the uh, the big platforms like Facebook don't do a better job with this, and yeah, yeah I they, don't accept that they can't do a better job with this. I know, for example, right. back when I was on Facebook. The one that always uh, <laughs> annoyed me, I always see ads for Ray-Bans. Right. You know, did you see those? And it would be mm. like the Ray-Bans logo at a slight angle. And, you know, that somehow they'd get into friends' accounts and friends would be posting, hey, look, Ray-Bans, you know. Look, right. You know. Um, but, like, you, you know, Facebook, Google, all these uh, platforms – they can identify a photo of me, you know, when a sliver of my ear is showing. Absolutely, right? I, <laughs> they, they can't. They can't tag something with a logo or a a, a front on fo- photo of uh, of Andrew Forrest or or, right. or Warren you know, Buffett any, or Keanu or Warren Reeves Buffett. Or, right, right. Bill Gates. Any of these folks. I mean, they should right. automatically when they see. Like they can't fingerprint that ad. And I know, you know, folks can do adversarial things in the images and alter them, blah, blah, blah. Still, I think the reason that they're not doing more against these is because it's against their interest to do so. Because the people who are running these scams are paying Facebook and Google or whoever to do it. Um, So here's here's another angle on this. Apple – disabling the access to the, uh, you know, what Apple did here, disabling the access to the ad token. Do you think Google will ever do that in Android? Do you think they'll ever make that a feature in Android where where users have to opt in to advertising? I don't think they will because it's so much no. of their revenue. Uh, it They yeah. would be losing a lot more than the $10 billion that Facebook is losing uh, if Google did this. I think the only way we'll see that is if we have uh, legislation that requires it. If, I if they agree make it with you. so that you have to opt in, right? Uh, that's the yeah. only way we'll see some of these these ad focused platforms. The amount of tracking like that, that goes on for us is is ridiculous. Yep, I would cancel yep. Facebook tomorrow if I could. <laughs> but unfortunately, <laughs> they got me, Dave. They got me. Yeah, uh, they got me good. No, it's I. You know, I say I'm not on Facebook anymore. But um, part of the reason I'm able to not be on Facebook is that my wife is very active on Facebook. So right. if something happens on Facebook with a mutual friend or a family member, I will hear about it through her. Right. 
So it's a little bit of a cheat, but, um, you know, my own mental health uh, benefits because of it. Yeah, I do spend a lot less time on on all social media platforms these days. In fact, uh, and and you say your mental health benefits from it. I've been spending a lot of time on LinkedIn lately, uh, just connecting with people because that's where I've been uh, talking with people. I'm finding even LinkedIn, which is as benign of a social social network as you can get, is yeah. I, I I find it impacts my impacts my uh, my state of mind. I don't like the way it impacts my state of mind. Hmm. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I don't know what to do here, Dave. I, I mean, I guess do what I keep keep doing what I'm doing, which is stay off of Twitter, stay off of Facebook, stay off of LinkedIn, stay off of any social uh, social networking site. It's just yeah. not, I don't think it's good for you. I really don't think it's good for you. No, I I think it's you know I think quitting any of these platforms. I think folks who've been through uh, quitting smoking describe it as being similar. You know, right. it's you you get pulled back to it. You're, you're it's a pleasurable thing, and you know it's not good for you, but Right. Boy, it's hard to hard to break away. So, <laughs> it, is. it is. Yeah. All right. Well, those are our stories this week. Again, we would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like us to cover, it's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener named Jonathan who writes, I discovered the show a couple months ago and have really been enjoying it. Check out this Geek Squad subscription scam email I just received. The thing I found hilarious about it is that it says, call a number, but then you can't even read the number it says to call. Uh, I, I have my suspicions, Dave, but go, why don't you go ahead and read this email and we'll, uh, we'll talk about it after, the, after you read it. All right, it goes like this. Dear customer, thank you for being our valued customer. Your subscription has been successfully auto-renewed and updated. The email confirms that you have renewed your one-year subscription with us for $299.99 on January 29th, 2022. The amount has been auto-debited from the account or card registered with us at the time of the purchase. The debited amount will reflect within the next 24 to 48 hours on your account statement. Please review your purchase history below. Product information, invoice number, order ID, type, protection plan, duration, one year from the date of purchase, amount $299.99, payment method, auto debit. The subscriptions will auto renew every year unless you turn it off, no later than 48 hours or before the end of the subscription period. To cancel or upgrade the subscription, or if you need more information about the invoice, Please call our billing team on the number given below, working on Monday to Friday from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. For further assistance or query, please call us at hashtag plus number 1N8NNN8N, hashtag hashtag 6N6N8, hashtag hashtag N hashtag 3N5N7N6, hashtag hashtag. Thank you for choosing us. <laughs> Regards, Geek Squad Team. <laughs> It's a hell of a number there, yeah. uh, Joe. Thank you, thank you uh, General Stonewall Jackson, for reading that to us. <laughs> uh, sometimes they just come to me. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of that, uh, of the, I can't remember, it was, uh, maybe it was Deputy Dog. Do you remember Deputy Dog? Yeah. The sheriff yeah. and Deputy Dog. That's what you, that's what I visualize when you're saying that. The guy with just the mustache. I was thinking a little bit of uh, Foghorn Leghorn, actually. Foghorn Leghorn, yeah. <laughs> Foghorn maybe, Leghorn. maybe some Boss Hog thrown in. Boss I don't know. Hog. So, um, 
here's here's my thinking on this. You you read that uh, that that phone number, and that's exactly how it appears in the in the email. I don't think this is a phone number. I think these are variables that you're supposed to change. I think what happened here is some noob to the criminal world bought a phishing kit, mm. uh, and the phishing kit contained an email template. Uh, that that <laughs> for a geek squad um, scam, and he or she didn't change any of the variables, didn't change the emails with all the hashtags. This thing just has hashtags all the way throughout it, right? Yeah, yeah. And right. it's, it, I think they just said, well, let's just send this. I mean, there's no <laughs> way for anybody to get in touch with them except maybe to reply to the email. Mm-hmm. Um, but aside from that, you know, what this, how this is supposed to work is you're supposed to call a number, somebody from customer support and our listeners can't see my air quotes going on there, but it's going to install some malicious software on your machine and essentially rob you blind. Uh, Right. That's how this scam works. But these guys, apparently this is their first try at it. uh, And they just sent this out to Jonathan and probably out to another hundred people. But the good Mm -hmm. news is, or (laughs) a hundred people, probably a hundred million people, a hundred million email addresses. Um, But the good news is, uh, now that this email has flooded the uh, the internet, it's going to be all over the spam filters. So whoever whoever paid money for this essentially just flush that money right down the toilet. <laughs> right, right. I just hit send. You did what? I just hit send. <laughs> right. We haven't put any of the variables in. Uh oh. Just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. All right. Well, uh, again, thank you to our listener, Jonathan, for sending that in to us. Uh, We do appreciate you taking the time. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Nick Chevelyoff. He is the chief security officer for Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, interesting conversation. Here's Nick Chevelyoff. So um, I talked a little bit about this um, in my book is that about 100 years ago, there was a revolution in Russia. My parents' ancestors uh, emigrated to China. Both my parents were born there. They emigrated to the United States. Um, and I was born um, in Washington state. But during the early 70s, um, you know, America wasn't a particularly friendly place to people of Russian ethnic descent. Uh, my dad uh, took a job with the State Department and we moved uh, back to the Soviet Union. They had an interest in getting to connect with their culture, uh, but also hopefully do some good work in sharing about you know, how life is like outside of the Iron Curtain. Uh, and during that period, um, we lived in an apartment, um, and uh, the apartment uh, uh, we learned was bugged. And so I learned at an early age that if you have something important to say, you you know signal to someone. You go over to a faucet and you run the water and you talk over the faucet because that that blurs the sound for the bugs um, and it um, sort of obfuscates what you're trying to say. Um, that was an interesting, a very inf- uh, sort of formative experience that uh, you, in some cases, your privacy uh, and your safety can be in jeopardy. Uh, later, my dad would publish a book uh, that had an accurate map of Moscow, which was a, uh, something that the government didn't like. Um, and so they, uh, the KGB came one day and took him away and interrogated him. And uh, when he returned, we uh, quickly left the Soviet Union and returned back to the United States where we stayed. 
But I guess those experiences and formative years of your childhood uh, kind of remind you that your safety and security and your privacy can be inf- infringed upon. Uh, and so I think in a lot of ways it influenced uh, my interests in life. Um, and at a relatively early age, I became interested in technology and sort of the democratization of data and sharing of information. But at the same time, my childhood experiences around security and privacy influenced the choices that I made in my career, focusing on what we call back in the 90s IT security, what is now referred to as cybersecurity or technology risk management. Hmm. You know, those experiences that you had growing up and, and having that uh, reality of, of, you know, folks listening in, how has that informed uh, your views these days? I'm thinking specifically as we've seen, you know, many of these online social media platforms rise to to prominence and a lot of that is based on what is referred to as surveillance capitalism. You have, a, I guess, a different life experience and perspective on that than a lot of other people would. Yeah, you're right. Um, in fact, there was an interesting Netflix documentary called The uh, Social Dilemma that talks about surveillance capitalism. I, don't, I, I touch upon it in the book. I don't go too deeply into it. Um, you know, one of the phrases that I use in the book is the very technology that empowers us may also imperil us, right? Uh, and for all the enablers that we get from social media and other technology, um, how can that be used against us? It is used. Uh, information harvested about you is used again in fraud attempts, in cybersecurity attacks, um, and, and social uh, engineering is used all the time to break into computer networks. I personally am careful uh, what I share um, uh, and how I share it because you know what I share and what I share today might be uh, viewed differently five, 10 years from now. And so um, sure, I, I, I have a, a lot of um, uh, network enabled devices in my home, uh, but at the same time, uh, I'm cognizant of uh, some of the benefits that I get, but also uh, the trade-offs that might ensue today or down the road, uh, depending on how you leverage those technologies. Well, the title of the book is Cyber War and Peace, Building Digital Trust Today with History as Our Guide. What prompted the creation of the book? So, you know, for um, for years, I've been speaking at seminars and conferences, both technology and security related. And um, I decided, you know, and and... And about 10 years ago, I sort of went through this period of introspection. Who am I? What do I believe? Why do I believe it? What are my values? How do they influence my decisions, my reactions? What are my earliest memories? What are my most valuable memories? And I kind of kept coming back to this story uh, that my father told me uh, as a young boy and as we were moving back to the Soviet Union because I was scared and it was a very different shift in uh life and a real culture shock. And the story I kept coming back to was uh, about a Spartan boy and a fox. Uh, And to learn more about the story and how it relates to the to the book, you'd have to uh, buy a uh, buy a copy of the book. By the way, all proceeds of the book are being donated to charity. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're going to go to the SVB Foundation, which will route the proceeds to next gen cyber talent uh, is uh, giving opportunities for underprivileged, underserved communities to get educated and get a job in cybersecurity. So hopefully a win-win uh, for the community. 
And so as I was going through this um, period of introspection and the story that influenced me over the course of my life, I started thinking more about how many things that I believe in and take action on really are stories and how powerful uh, storytelling is um, and how I have enjoyed history and philosophy and technology and innovation. And if I were to sort of tie all the things that I enjoy in life together, and hopefully I can share more meaningful stories with uh, audiences. And so I did that. And uh, afterwards, people would come up and say, boy, this is great. Thank you for sharing. Uh, you spoke to me in a way on a complex and complicated topic that I, I better understand now. You should write a book about this. Um, and I just never had the time. Um, and so as we were um, going into the pandemic and going into lockdown, I thought, you know, this is going to change my life, our lives. Uh, I'm going to be, you know, at home, what I want to do. And so I thought, you know, I will uh, take this as an opportunity uh, to write a book uh, and take uh, poignant lessons from history that have been relevant to me that translate into sound technology and cybersecurity practices. And I'll write a book about it. And I'll share a little bit about a personal, some of the personal stories of in my life, and I'll weave it together, and I'll kind of walk through history and take these lessons from history, tie them to sound security practices, and write it for an audience that uh, uh, might not necessarily have a technical background, business leaders who are reading the Wall Street Journal uh, and want to learn more about technology, and, uh, and they can pick up this book and learn about a lesson in history, use the power of analogical thinking and storytelling and apply it to sound security practices. And hopefully that will help the community. If you're a practitioner, you might be able to tell your story a little more effectively through the power of analogy. Uh, and at the end of the day, at one point, having been a, a poor kid living in one room with his family after we had returned from the Soviet Union, I would have loved a, a leg up in life and someone helping me out. So uh, again, proceeds will go to a uh, charity. So hopefully uh, using the power of storytelling, helping uh, demystify a complex topic, uh, having a little bit of fun along the way and all for a good purpose is sort of the, the genesis of the book. Can you give us a, a representative sample from the book, something that uh, where you've looked back into history to inform what we're up to these days? Sure. You know, I start off um, with a chapter in chapter one around how the Romans used to think about, um, you know, war and peace. Uh, they had a, a saying in Latin, civin victim parabellum. If you wish for peace, prepare for war. And today, organizations, if you want to run a healthy, prosperous business and maintain a sense of peace, you need to prepare for digital war. Uh, I go on to chapter two around the Code of Hammurabi uh, in ancient Babylon. Uh, Hammurabi was trying to build an empire, uh, but was running into problems such as poor architecture. Uh, and he developed a set of laws, what he called a set of codes. And one of the codes said, if you build a building and it collapses and it kills someone, that will be your fate. Uh, and so he got skin in the game and that contributed to architectural prowess in ancient Babylon uh, which later contributed to uh, the uh, Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the ancient, uh, one of the wonders of the ancient world. Uh, and today, that translates directly to how we should be thinking about technology architecture. We should have investment in the outcomes. 
uh, within our decision-making process. And so that translates directly to a uh, National Institutes of Standards and Technology principle on how you should be thinking about architecture. You know, we move on to the next chapter around uh, the Spartan 300. Uh, How did 300 Spartan soldiers hold off a million-man Persian army for three days and three nights? How did they do it? They managed their attack surface. And today, organizations need to be thinking through managing their attack surface where we maintained uh, legacy defense and depth uh, technologies while evolving to cloud-first, mobile-first technologies. How do you think through managing your attack surface and managing zero trust models with where you have the right set of multi-factor authentication, identity and access management, roles-based access with continuous validation and managing that attack surface? And so each chapter moves on through history um, and takes a key lesson. So uh, in chapter four, I talk about Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius was a Roman general who became Caesar, and he kept a diary uh, on his thoughts about life. He was a Stoic philosopher. Uh, and later, um, that, that diary turned into a book, Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. It's a book that's had a profound influence on my life and how to leverage aspects of Stoic philosophy and thinking about uh, resilience for yourself and for organizations. Uh, and so know thyself is one of the principles of that book. Um, and so know thyself is so key today in uh, managing technology risk. It's something that uh, Sun Tzu also uh, talked about in The Art of War uh, and talked about know thyself and know thy enemy and you will win 100 battles. And today organizations need to know their assets. They need to know their data what data is yielding economic value, what data has turned toxic. And instead of being oil, it's more like uranium, where you store it, where you handle it, how you transfer it. It can provide power, but also toxicity. Um, And so those are some of the concepts in the early part of the book. I'll pause there and see if you want me to continue on through the various chapters or if that kind of hits the points you wanted to talk about. No, I, I mean, I think that gives us a, a good idea of uh, of what the book is about. Um, you know, I, I have to say, you know, when when you look back as that uh, that young kid in a you know a single room, you know, coming back to the United States from the Soviet Union and wondering what was ahead of you, and and now here you are, you're a chief security officer at Silicon Valley Bank. That's quite a journey. Um, when you look back on that, uh, do you sometimes have to pinch yourself? A little bit, you know, uh, a little bit. I go back to those times where I would, you know, escape my reality to go sit in the garage and I would set up a computer and get on the internet and join bulletin board services. And um, this is pre-browser days, right? So it was uh, interesting. It's poignant. uh, And technology has been such a a fundamental aspect of my life. Uh, It's so interesting, the uh, innovation that we've seen over the last 40 years. So excited to see what's going to happen over the next 40 years, Uh, but also how it's helped me uh, build a life. You know, one of the foundational principles I, uh, you know, was instilled in me is a sense of curiosity and a sense of continuous learning and development. And so the first investment I've always made is an investment in my own education. Um, And so um, and, and that's compounded over the course of time. Um, and here's an opportunity to hopefully share some insights um, in a fun and interesting way 
where others may benefit from it um, and may be able to pr- better protect themselves and their organizations. Uh, and, um, and, and so it has been sort of a, uh, a, a journey that I pause and look back on and feel a lot of uh, um, sense of accomplishment and uh, hope to pay it forward for others as well so that the, the kid who's um, you know, sitting in a, living in a room with his family can maybe understand the power of storytelling and incorporate it into their life or the business leader who wants to learn more uh, can do, uh, do that just the same. All right, Joe, what do you think? What an interesting story about his upbringing. Mm, uh, mm-hmm. You know, his, I am fascinated by this story. His grandparents, I, well, I actually, he said he, his parental ancestors, I guess it was grandparents, they moved to, they moved out of Russia into China and then from China to the U.S., um, where his dad got a job at the State Department. That's amazing. It's a yeah. great story. Very interesting to listen to. Um, one of the things he says is he's careful about what he posts on social media. Um, I post very little now, not just because of, of my aversion I was talking about earlier in the show, uh, but largely because of that, but also because of a point that Nick makes in this, uh, in this interview is that you don't know how these things are going to age. You know, Mm. you don't -hmm. know how the culture is going to change. And, uh, these Twitter accounts or these, these tweets may last for years. Now I, there's, um, when you're on Grumpy Old Geeks, every now and then Jason and Brian talk about a tool that goes out and just deletes all your tweets beyond a certain age. I can't remember what the right. name of that tool is. but Yeah, I don't um, remember either, but I, I was thinking of the same thing. Yeah, uh, and that would be a great idea. Uh, yeah, I don't post when, – when I first started using social media, I would post stuff willy-nilly on there. Uh, mm-hmm. And at one point in time, I just said, you know, this is not something I want to be remembered for having said. <laughs> and it was it was something stupid. It may have been a joke, it, and it may have just been a, a like a dumb joke, right? Right. It wasn't. It wasn't anything like, oh, geez, I better remove this before <laughs> so and so sees this. It was. It was something. It was something benign, like something that was not. Um, I don't. I still don't think it would have been harmful, but it was just. I don't. So I, I went back and I actually just deleted all my history through Facebook, and that took like two days for me to do it. Hmm. Um, but now, now I just put like family updates on there, in and you know maybe. Uh, and Facebook's memories always have like the, the worst memories for me. Um, <laughs> like there was one, <laughs> for example, Dave, a, a quick perusal of my Facebook posts, uh, back in December, uh, of last year, I got a memory come up on Facebook. Facebook has these memories, which are like former statuses that you posted. Mm-hmm. And the only thing I say in this, <laughs> in this status is Oklahoma, 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 Oklahoma. <laughs> Right, we're Which, in the midst of a stroke or something. Right, exactly. <laughs> and my comment on this is another great, fa- another great Facebook memory for which I have zero context. There you go. I don't know why I was put. Maybe I was watching Dirty Rotten Scoundrels uh-huh. um, because that's you know that's that's a line. But I, I don't know why I posted that. But for some reason, Facebook said, "Hey Joe, remember when you said Oklahoma, 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 Oklahoma?" Right. Right. Boy, and, there's a, that algorithm is uh, on top of things. Right. Seven years ago, apparently I said that, and I have no recollection of even making that post. Um, wow. So, uh, yeah. So th- that's kind of what I'm talking about here is, you know, why, why did I do that? What was the, what was the point? Um, storytelling is a great analogy and a great way of relaying key concepts. And I'm actually working on this myself. I'm actually working on a presentation that has some storytelling in it uh, to help, talk about social engineering attacks. Um, and I think, I think it's going to work well. I'm hoping that it works well. 
Mm. Um, I, I like the ancient analogies that are the ancient history analogies that Nick puts in here. Hammurabi makes it so builders have a vested interest in making sure that the buildings of Babylon don't collapse. Um, what if every time someone got a scam, uh, someone got scammed on Facebook, Meta had to refund the money that they were scammed? You know, oh, wow. Yeah, that looking, would change look, the equation, right. but quick. Right. You yeah. know, if, if, you know, do what Hammurabi did, you know, say your fate will be their fate, Facebook. Uh, you know, that guy, mm-hmm. that person lost $80,000 thanks to a Facebook scam. Pay up. Uh, the Spartans held off the Persians at Thermopylae for three days by reducing their attack service, but eventually they did lose the battle because they were up against a large nation state actor with tons of resources. Hmm. Right. The Persians actually did penetrate that uh, and and get through into the rest of Greece. Which, by the way, at the time was all um, just a bunch of city states, not Greece as we think of in modern modern terms. Mm-hmm. Um, the Art of War and Marcus Aurelius uh, Meditations are great books. Uh, make sure you get good translations on these, though. Uh, it's 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 kind of important. Some of them are 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 just wrong. So make sure you get good translations. I have my opinions. If you want to know, uh, feel free to reach out. Overall, a great interview. I like that Nick uses your your analogy uh, on on data becoming toxic when it mm-hmm. when it gets uh, you know some data can become toxic if you get too much of it together. You you say it becomes radioactive. Think of it right. like nuclear material, uh, right. fissile material. That if you get if you get enough of it together, it becomes dangerous. But you know, sprinkled about about the planet, it's fine. Yeah, um, you know, it's not it's not bad. Overall, a very interesting interview, and I was uh, really interested to hear Nick's story, and I'm I'm, I'm going to pick up his book. Good, good yeah, interview. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, we appreciate Nick taking the time. A really interesting guest. So uh, thanks again for being with us. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.